Welcome to Scientist Soundwaves. My name is Hiroki Karada, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Natural disasters are occurring all over the world at faster rates. This is hurricanes, cyclones, droughts, floods, and heat waves. While many people believe that climate change's impacts are in the far future, scientists have been predicting that many of climate change's impacts will become irreversible by 2030. Many researchers have been trying to predict the impacts of climate change and come up with solutions to alleviate the repercussions of climate change in the global effort. Today, we have Professor Reed, our special guest from Stony Brook University, who's a great contributor to the fight against climate change. He's an expert at climate modeling, climate change attribution, tropical cyclones, climate extremes, atmospheric dynamics, and science policy. Furthermore, he's a leader of the Climate Extreme Modeling Group at Stony Brook, who were Discovery Prize finalists in 2021. Thank you so much for coming on board, Professor Reed. Thanks for having me. Firstly, could you please explain to us why you decided to become an expert in climate modeling and extreme weather? Yeah, so of course it's a, a long story, but I'll try to keep it short. Uh, you know, similar to maybe a lot of the listeners, uh, as a child growing up, I, I was very interested in, in the world around me. Um, and, and for me, that really manifested as a, maybe a 12, 13 year old when I used to really, really enjoy uh, watching uh, the weather channel um, in the United States, uh, especially at the tropical update during the hurricane season in which they would provide an update of how active um, the North Atlantic Ocean Basin is, um, and also follow along with tropical cyclones and hurricanes as they formed. Um, and so that meant that I was always kind of interested in, in weather and extreme weather. And then it wasn't until um, I got to college actually, uh, to university that I realized that this is something that you could actually do for a living. Um, and so I just kind of uh, happened on, the, uh, on some courses in weather um, and climate as an undergraduate. I was doing my undergraduate degree in physics. Uh, and then it was a natural way for me to kind of um, pursue a graduate degree and a PhD um, in atmospheric and climate science. And it was just, it just came, was, at that point I realized, oh, I can actually study extreme weather um, and the context of climate change for, for a PhD. And so that's how I ended up here. Well, thank you so much for the inspiring message. Now, moving into the first topic, could you please elaborate on how climate modeling works and its application? Yeah, so, well, this is a, a, a big question and an important question. I think, you know, one of the, the simplest way to kind of explain what climate modeling is, it's, a, it's, it's, the, it's a, a mathematical tool to represent the processes that we know that are important in the climate system. So this is everything to the large scale dynamics that create our day-to-day -day weather, um, to understanding that flow, uh, to representing the individual cloud droplets within a cloud, uh, right? So the small, small things that you can't even see to representing those on a scale that creates clouds, but also how their atmosphere, for example, interacts with the ocean or interacts with the ice sheets or interacts with land and life on land. And so what a climate model is, is it's a scientist's tool uh, to try to represent all of those individual processes and interactions in a way that we can then compute how they might interact, not only in the past, but also in the future. And so we, we run our simulations both in the past and the future to see 
first in the past to understand how well can the climate model represent the historical past. Uh, and once we have a model that we think is relatively good at representing the changes and the weather and the temperatures that we've seen in the past, we then can run that under future scenarios to understand how the climate might change in the coming decades. Uh, and so this is used for a variety of things. I mean, you know, in its most basic sense, it's used to understand, you know, if we continue to increase greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, how will the, will the climate change? Actually, that's what climate models were, one of their first uses, right, was to answer the question, will the climate change? And now they're, they're being more and more used to ask, how will the climate change? So in which ways will different regions experience different changes, uh, both to the weather, to retreating glaciers, to sea level rise, to the impact that it has on ecosystems? And so it's used for a variety of applications. Uh, you know, some is uh, the best example of that is to understand what type of mitigation strategies and mitigation is just right. A fancy word of saying, if we control the amount of greenhouse gases we put into the atmosphere, you know, how will that impact uh, future climate? So understanding the range of scenarios and what that means for climate. So that's one application. Another is, is as we start to build more and more comprehensive climate models that include all of the important processes, both at the global and the fine scale, the fine scale of things like extreme weather events, can we start to actually make informed decisions about how to better prepare our coastlines, for example, from, from tropical cyclones in the future? How do we better adapt and how do we make them more resilient? Uh, but also this could be used for applications for agriculture. It could be used for applications of understanding marine systems as well as, as glacier and, and ice sheet retreat and what that means for actual communities so that they can know what they're planning for in 2050 versus right now maybe planning for things to stay the same, which we know they aren't going to remain the same. I see. So climate modeling is essential to improve our understanding of climate behavior and also climate change's impact as a result. So now focusing on the application of climate modeling for mitigating the impacts of climate change will reaching 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels as the Paris Climate Accord Agreement strives for be good enough to prevent the frequency and intensity of severe tropical cyclones from rising? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question, right? And so I think this is a good opportunity to kind of to talk a little bit about Right, the difference between policy solutions for a global crisis like climate change versus the, the realism of what you can achieve. Right? And so a target of one and a half degrees that's set out uh, by the Paris Climate Accord is, is kind of this idea to stop what, what's kind of referred to sometimes as you know, dangerous climate change. And, and so that's an admirable goal, but it's worth noting right, that the world has already warmed by one degree Celsius which means that, that that's, that's a large change to occur on a global average from the perspective of the last thousands of years uh, of what we know about the temperature record on earth. And, and so for us to think that that hasn't had an impact on our individual weather events, for example, I think is actually maybe a little, a little naive, right? And so what some of the research that we're trying to do is actually to show that even under today's conditions, the intensity in terms of rainfall within tropical cyclones has already changed. So we've done some work where you can look at Hurricane Florence, which made landfall a few years ago in the Carolinas in the United States, or, or other folks have done research that have focused on Hurricane Harvey, which, which 
dumped an unbelievable amount of rainfall in Texas a few years ago. And, and when we look at these storms, we're actually seeing that the amount of rainfall that fell within the storm has actually already increased because of climate change, right? So because of the one degree warming, it's, it's already increased by anywhere from five to 15%, which doesn't seem like a lot, but that, that is that, you know, that can be a, a, you know, that can be quite a bit. That can be the difference between a house flooding, a levee failing or not. And so when you look at a world that's one and a half degrees warmer, it's for sure tropical cyclones are going to be stronger and have more rainfall associated with them. We know that that is becoming clear. Now, in terms of frequency, that's a little bit harder of a scientific question. That's an active area of research. And we're trying to understand how does frequency both regionally within individual basins, such as the West Pacific or the North Atlantic or the Indian Ocean, you know, how does that change compared to the global number? And that's a little, that's a little um, unclear at the moment. Some, some research suggests that the number of storms is going to be decreasing. Some suggest that it might stay the same. And understanding what a world with one and a half degree uh, warming would look like uh, in terms of frequency is a little bit more of a challenging problem. But I, I kind of want to step back and, and, and say one additional thing to that, which is, you know, if the frequency decreases by 5%, but if we know that the rainfall is increasing by anywhere from five to 15%, right? It, whether or not you have one or two less storms per year on the globe doesn't really matter much because ultimately the storms that you do have are getting stronger in ways that makes them more disproportionately impactful. And so the, the kind of the final thing to kind of, I think say about this, this topic is that in a one and a half degree warmer world, the, the system will have inevitably changed. It's one and a half degree warmer. So the storms are going to change and they've already changed. And so the key here is when we think about international agreements like the, the Paris Climate Accord, it's important to remember that this is a very ambitious goal to reduce our carbon emissions. And it is worth fighting for, but it doesn't mean that we cannot, or it doesn't mean that we can just stop thinking about adaptation. We are, in addition to hoping that we can mitigate to a world that's only one and a half degrees warmer, we have to prepare for a world that's one and a half degrees warmer. And that means making wholesale changes to our coastlines, to our water resources, to the way we do agriculture, to a lot of different things to not only reduce carbon emissions, but also prepare us for, for this different climate that we'd be living in. So even reaching the goal of 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels will still lead to much more persistent and severe weather. So keeping this in mind, as someone who has been researching the impacts of the warming climate on extreme weather, what do you think about the current state of our response to climate change? Well, I, you know, I think I think it's first, we should start with the fact that we've made a lot of progress in not only our understanding of climate and climate change and how, how it's impacted by a variety of things, including greenhouse gases and land use change, and even the creation of urban cities. We have a better grasp of what these interactions are now and what that means for the future. So if anything, that means we're, we're as poised now as we've ever gonna be to respond adequately and swiftly. In terms of our response to date, right, I think we're behind. We, 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 need, to, we need to start mitigating and reducing our carbon ga greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible. 
And so the reason I say we're kind of a little bit behind the ball is just because we've kind of, while there's been great research for going out for clean technologies, renewable technologies for energy or energy efficiency or new practices for agriculture that are less carbon intensive, you know, we, we know about these, but we, we haven't been investing as much in them globally as we probably should have over the last decade. And so I would say our response has been slow, but we're, we're as poised now as we're going to be to start to make a change. And there, and that doesn't mean we haven't made changes. I mean, we have, you know, different countries and different locations and individuals that are very climate conscious have, have made changes. And so this shows us that we can achieve our goals. It's just that we've got to get, we don't have to get everybody on the same page right now. We've just got to start showing people that when you start to live in a greener society and when you live in a cleaner society from a greenhouse gas perspective, that it's not that much different than the society we live in now. I mean, in terms of, you know, you, we still have all of the the luxuries, you know, we can still turn on our computers, we can still do all this stuff. It's just, we're, we're doing it in a way that's, that's much more sustainable. And once more and more people and more and more cultures and cities and countries see that, the more and more people are going to get on board, right? Because they realize that actually this future is attainable. And once you have that, I think you'll have this kind of snowball effect. I think I, I, I am optimistic in the sense that while we're running behind where we'd be ideally, I'm optimistic in the sense that once we get this ball rolling, the advantages that come from a sustainable, cleaner society are going to be, are, are on paper and, and in experience, are just going to be so vast, just beyond the, what it means for, for climate mitigation. It's just going to be better for our drinking water. It's going to be better for our, our air is going to be cleaner that we breathe in our cities. You know, there's just all these opportunities. They're going to have green space, right? All these things are going to be better for us as, as, as humans as well. And so I really am confident that this is going to, you know, this is going to get the ball rolling. And once it's rolling, I think we're going to be off, off and, and running. But I also don't think that we should focus too much on this 1.5 degrees, right? Because that's, while that's an important benchmark, it's, it's an arbitrary number, right? So if we end up at two degrees, or if we end up at 1.7 degrees, or maybe if we end up at two and a half degrees, while that's not what we're targeting for, we have to set a target, but we have to realize that we're probably gonna, you know, there's practical implications, we're a little bit late, we have to do whatever we can to at least mitigate a four or five degree warmer world, because though that will have disastrous <laughs> impacts on our extreme weather, on our food systems, on our energy systems, um, and, and essentially on our human systems. So what kind of climate adaption policies do you personally recommend be implemented? Yeah, so this is, you know, this is a hard question to answer because there's, there's no right or wrong answer, right? Just, it's no different than, you know, you or I, right? Like what, what, what clothes do you prefer to wear? What shirt are you going to wear based upon the temperature today? You know, I might pick a blue one, you might pick a, a green one. And, and so in this sense, the, the policies are going to, are very, especially adaptation policies are going to be very local. They're going to be local to the culture, to the individual, to the society that's adapting, where of course, mitigation policies are international in scope because you have to agree on targets and, and then you have to, to look at each other, you know, individuals as countries and see if everybody's meeting their targets, where at the end, adaptation is local because it, it depends upon the characteristics of your coastline, for example. It depends upon the characteristics of the ecosystems in which you live in. It depends upon, you know, the, the built environment that you've developed over the last 100 or 150 years, or in some cases, thousands of years, depending upon on where you live. 
And so those policies have to be very local and they have to make sense for your culture and your way of life. And so a, a policy of, you know, one of the, uh, an example of adaptation policy, which has been discussed in, in the New York area where I live has been these building of, of floodgates that would close off the New York Harbor in the advance of a, of a, of a tropical cyclone that might bring a, a large amount of storm surge. So that is one way to adapt. Now that's not necessarily the way that New York is going to adapt, but it is one way to adapt. But you have to look at that, that has implications for other things. It's gonna have implications for the ecosystems. It's gonna have implications for the river runoff from the Hudson River that goes into the, the New York Harbor. But there's other adaptation policies and some of the best adaptation policies, in my opinion, is returning the coastline back to its more natural habitat. Right? So that's restoring natural dunes that used to exist. That's restoring the natural marshes and mangroves and things like this that used to exist in a large parts of, of the world that have been removed so that we can build houses and cities right on that. It's starting to build some of the natural protections that the, that the earth had provided us uh, from these type of events. And so there, that, there's that. Um, so that's one um, adaptation policy that could also be useful. Another one that will, it is going to be useful in certain rate areas, such as areas in, in you know, closer to the, the Arctic in which they're actually losing land because of coastal erosion. There, the, the adaptation policy is either relocation or, or actually retreat, right? The, the adaptation policy is to, to move inland. And that might be the case there, but maybe not necessarily the case in, in, in somewhere else or, or in more mountainous regions that can't actually move in, right? I mean, you'd be moving up and then that's also a completely change of, of your climate. And so, you know, what kind of policies do, do I personally recommend? I, I would say that, that I recommend policies that are right for the community. So, let, so when the community works with policymakers and scientists and other you know, engineers and urban planners to come up with the right policies for the community. And that might be different than the policy 100 kilometers away or even 10 kilometers away. But the way to do it is to, to, to come up with these as a community, as a society that are relevant for the, for the local area that you're adapting. Uh, it, sorry, the local area in which you're adapting and for the type of weather or changes or sea level rise that you are adapting to, which is also going to be very different depending on where you are. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Reed. It was a pleasure having you on this show. If you would like to ask us a question about today's podcast or would like to offer your expertise and join us as a guest speaker, please email us at the link in the description box. Thank you for supporting our new podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed listening to today's session. Stay safe and see you soon.